Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back to the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves since 2006. You can support my work at kevinbarrett.substack.com. And you can find your way to more work by way of truthjihad.com. Okay, let's get moving into the second hour. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I have two live radio guests tonight who I should have had on a long time ago probably, both uh, really good people to be talking to right now. The first hour guest, Robert Fantina, is an expert on issues related to Palestine. And to some extent, so is my second hour guest, Sam Husseini, although he's an expert on a number of other things as well, including COVID origins. Sam Husseini is one of the last real journalists left in the U.S. He actually asks hard questions of people in power. In fact, he's made a specialty of that. He sometimes has been known to ambush them as they go to the big Sunday morning talk shows, and he goes to the press conferences and holds their feet to the fire when hardly anybody else does. Most recently, he uh, asked a State Department spokesman, will you urge Israel not to starve and slaughter people? And he couldn't get a straight answer. Oh, boy. Um, Anyway, it's really an honor to have Sam Husseini on the show, somebody I uh, admire tremendously. Hey, welcome, Sam. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kevin. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you, too. I've been following your work for quite some time, and I, I appreciate that you have the courage to go there when, you know, places that most people don't, like COVID origins, for example. Uh, that sure seemed to scare a lot of folks away. Uh, and now we're in the midst of this accelerating genocide of Palestine, uh, just a horrific situation. And uh, I'm you know, wondering what it's like to be in the belly of the beast there in Washington, D.C., as it seems like that town and that country has gone completely insane, uh, buying into, you know, with the president, you know, drooling about uh, 40 beheaded babies and things like that. Uh, I mean, what <laughs> how, how can you even stand to be working there? Um, Yeah, it's kind of rough. I mean, I do work out of my home in Riverdale, Maryland, which is about 30 minutes away, but it allows me to go in uh, most recently to the State Department briefings and trying to ask tough questions. Um, I got the vibe in the last one that they weren't going to call on me. And indeed, for the first 15 minutes, you wouldn't even know that Israel had ever heard a fly um, at the news conference. Even Matt Lee, who sometimes does good stuff at the AP, one of the you know, best people in establishment media just ask completely useless questions. Um, and so I, I chimed in at that point and just started hollering out questions. Um, and uh, then they called on Saeed Arakat, who's a Palestinian journalist, and he asked, you know, some good questions. And then they um, and then they uh, called on Max Blumenthal. Uh, that was a mistake. A little... huh? <laughs> it, it, Matt, Max was actually sitting next to me. Um, and I, I think that sometimes Matt Miller, the um, spokesperson, calls on people right next to me in order to taunt me. Um, but this time it kind of blew up in his face. Yeah, because uh, he, he he didn't know who Max Blumenthal was or what he looked like. So, uh, so that was... went fairly well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. 
so yeah, Max is uh, is is still doing great work on that issue. Uh, so right. uh, yeah, how, what? Yeah. What, what what are we you know what what can we do right now with you know the situation is just out of control beyond belief where it looks like they're going to flee forward from this new debacle in Ukraine you know after the debacle in Afghanistan where you know we we got you know helicoptered out from the roof of the embassy just like in Saigon and and now uh, it looks like Ukraine is going down too. And so we're sending uh, sending a ship off Gaza to make sure that no humanitarian aid gets to the two and a half million starving people there. Uh, you know, how, how much crazier can American foreign policy possibly get? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's that crazy. It's insidious. Um, it's it's one, you know, uh, you know, scam or war crime after another. Um, and you keep distracting from one to the other so people can't figure out what's what's going on. Um, I mean, the whole, you know, butchering babies things was in my view, a sort of rehash of the baby incubator story, which helped drum up support for the Iraq war in 1991. Um, and I think that Israel wants to, um, pulverize and potentially ethnically cleanse, uh, the Palestinians in, um, in Gaza. So I think that it's sort of a continuation of of, of a longstanding crime spree. It involves, um, uh, you know, making failed states out of any countries in the Middle East that try to assert themselves, whether that's, you know, Iraq or Libya or Syria, um, and uh, ensure the subjugation of uh, the Palestinians by Israel as it continuously expands in concert with the Saudis uh, who are pulverizing the Yemenis, although the Saudis now have to at least pretend that they're doing something for the Palestinians, I suppose. Um, but uh, I'm not sure how, how real that is. I would even say that I'm somewhat skeptical of people who are rhetorically really for the Palestinians. Let, let me give you a concrete example. Um, uh, the Iranians and uh, in, in past attacks, you had the Bolivians and the Venezuelans, um, the Pakistani government uh, calling what Israel does to Gaza genocide. But none of those countries have tried to invoke the Genocide Convention. Now, obviously, international law is very limited, but you use whatever mechanisms you can. Um, and it's my understanding that part of the reason that they didn't do it is that the PLO asked them not to. Um, but the PA I just saw uh, used the word genocide. So um, I think that there's pressure to be applied in people to, uh, you know, um, to, to, to do that, uh, to get the PLO to say this is genocide and therefore facilitate countries that could initiate proceedings under the Genocide Convention. That's one concrete legal tool that could be um, that could be employed so that the support um, globally isn't just rhetorical. Um, well, why why did the, the PLO why did the PLO not want countries to invoke the genocide? Because the PLO and the PA is playing footsie with the Israelis half the time. Um, you know, I mean, with the Oslo Accords, um, uh, they, they they sort of became 
the Israeli subcontractor for oppressing the Palestinians at times, at least. Um, so there's there's an insidious dynamic going on there. Um, you know, hopefully they broke. I mean, I just saw some uh, some pro-Israeli commentators, you know, speculating that they were kind of hoping that maybe uh, what would happen is that the uh, PA would uh, ride into Gaza now, or you know, after you know the Israeli onslaught, assuming the Israelis are successful, that the PA could ride into Gaza on the banks of Israeli tanks. I don't think that's likely, but it's interesting that they think that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've had pretty good luck uh, neutralizing the the PA and using it for their purposes. And as you say, turning it into a subcontractor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, so you mentioned that you see this as the Zionists trying to finish the ethnic cleansing of Gaza and of Palestine. And that recalls. Yeah, yeah. And that recalls a warning that Alan Hart delivered many times on his radio show, the late, great Alan Hart, author of the Zionism Trilogy, which I still think is one of the best introductions to this issue. And you know, Alan was the BBC lead correspondent for Occupied Palestine. He's a personal friend of Yasser Arafat, Golda Meir. And he warned many times on this radio show that the Zionists were going to try to gin up a big false flag or a big war, and they were going to use that to finish the ethnic cleansing of Palestine under the cover of the fog of war. And now with this uh, new escalation in in Palestine uh, with Operation Al-Aqsa Storm, there are a lot of folks who think that maybe what Alan warned about has come true and they are calling this some sort of false flag or a lie hop, let it happen on purpose thing. And even Egypt has said that they warned the Israelis who seem to look the other way. I personally don't see this as something I would categorize as a false flag. I don't see it as a something the Zionists would likely really want to happen. There are way too many ways this could go that are going to hurt them. In fact, just being defeated so badly is a huge uh, slap in the face, and and that's not good for their morale. It is good for the Palestinians' morale. So I don't see this really as a false flag. But again, Alan Hart did warn about that, and I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, false flag, probably not. I mean, those were were Hamas fighters uh, who did that, Um, but I think, you know, a, it could have been effectively a stand down, right? I mean, the, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, but many people think that FDR effectively allowed it to happen so as to draw the U.S. into war. Um, so we could be seeing that kind of scenario. Um, uh, we are, and it's, and that that that's heightened by, as you say, um, the indications that Egypt uh, warned Israel ahead of time. Um, uh, Hamas, if you look at their statements, uh, has repeatedly said that they warned Israel, although the nature of those warnings isn't clear to me. Um, uh, I noticed that even people in Congress, which is, you know, just completely lunatic pro-Israel, have been indicating that that they think that um, Israel uh, was warned. Um, Um. and I saw a piece by Seymour Hirsch basically arguing that, you know, you know, whose career is now toast because eventually people will figure out that he was warned and he failed in his primary responsibility to protect Israelis. That that may be true, but 
I think it almost misses the point. I mean, you know, careers of politicians are expendable for the larger Zionist or imperial project. So, you know, I mean, George W. Bush, you know, isn't a, a, a well thought of figure, but he ensured that the uh, invasion of Iraq happened and that was his utility to the U.S. establishment. So it could well be that, you know, Netanyahu's career could be toast. But uh, if this um, invasion of Gaza goes through and it has cataclysmic results, which some Zionists might want, and but you're right to say that maybe, you know, things could go badly for them. Um, but uh, that that you know th- that that could be Netanyahu's utility. I, I think what we have to keep in mind, I think a central myth, so many myths, but a central myth is that Israel has no choice. And I would say no, Israel has a damn big choice um, and a clear choice. Um, you know, in 2004, you had the Madrid uh, train bombing. And the Spanish people voted out the hawkish government. Um, And they voted in a government that said, we're going to get out of Iraq in six months. And they voted them in. And within six months, that government withdrew all Spanish troops from Iraq. And there has been no Middle East related uh, terrorist activity with respect to Spain in the many years since then. Um, So there's a choice to make. It's not a law of physics that Israel has to respond in this way, can actually think and decide that Netanyahu doesn't care at all um, uh, for the safety of the Israeli public. If he did, he would have come to a reasonable accommodation with any any number of opportunities that he's he and the rest of the Israeli establishment have had over the years. Um, the other big myths that we're seeing, of course, are this you know, you know, butchering babies stuff. Um, apparently, the, the raping woman stuff also seems suspect to me, and that it looks like people are backing off of those claims. So it's real, really a sort of a volcano of lies and demonization um, that, that we saw that are intended to shut down critical thought. I saw somebody challenging, and this is something people can do, like get in the face of politicians. This guy got into Sanders' face. I don't know if you saw this clip. Um, and he didn't do a great job, but he did okay. And, uh, you know, DeSantis' immediate response this guy who said that he had been in Gaza and, you know, what are the Israelis doing? And it's terrible. The first thing that this comes out of DeSantis's mouth is uh, these Hamas butcher babies. So like once you put a story out there like that, I, I think it's a very, um, you know, uh, insidious, but very effective form of propaganda that it just completely short circuits people's brains. And so, that they will accept any atrocity to, you know, pretend to fight people who, you know, butcher babies. Yeah. Uh, Robert Fontina was talking about that in the, in the first hour that the, like when Biden said it, 
by you know Biden then you know trumpeted it to the world at an international press conference, and then when he right. walked it back, it was sort of a footnote and on page four. Exactly. So. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's it's it's kind of mind-boggling because that I mean that is that's such a kind of obviously preposterous claim, and and I was tossing around the idea with with Bob that maybe it's projection on the part of the Israelis who are notoriously. Uh, hateful towards Palestinian babies, right? They have the one shot, two kills T-shirts with a target on the belly of the pregnant women. And the uh, Ayelet Shaked says, kill the little snakes, meaning the babies and the mothers who bear them. And there's this complete, uh, you know, a a, a fear about uh, demographic encroachment and all that sort of thing. So it makes you think that they're coming up with these baby butchery stories based on projecting their own feelings about babies. Yeah, I think it might be even worse than projecting feelings. It's they know that they intend to bomb Gaza, um, and so they put out this, and that that and that that's going to, you know, kill a lot of children and babies and other people, um, and so they want to inoculate themselves against that. So they put out the charge that. Um, uh, that the, the Palestinians butchered babies, so therefore, you know, it, it, it allows them far greater latitude to commit atrocities, um, uh, in, including killing babies. So, um, you know, that, 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 that's right, well, that, and that would make that like criminal propaganda, wouldn't it? I mean, incitement, yeah, in a legal sense, yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah. it is criminal propaganda. Um, uh, it, it, it's and an amazing number of people fell for it, like people like Michael Tracy, who's this sort of Chris Hitchens-like contrarian on Twitter and has been critical of Israel. But he, he swallowed this baby stuff. It is incredible. Um, it's like people don't understand basic propaganda of history of, of, of the baby incubator story where, you know, the you know, U.S. Congress had these fake hearings and this woman testified, I don't know how many of your listeners remember this, um, you know, claiming that Iraqi soldiers threw baby incub- threw babies out of their incubators when they invaded Kuwait. Yeah, threw them to die, know, down to die on the cold tiles. Uh, that was Nurse right. Naira, the uh, Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter, pretending to be a nurse from a hospital. Right, yeah. right, yeah. right, yeah. Um, uh, all staged by a huge Zionist um, uh, Tom Lantos, he presided over those hearings. So I think that we're sort of continuing in that tradition. Um, so I, I think that this is, you know, an incredibly educatable moment in terms of reaching people and saying, look, you just fell for this massive propaganda. The way that you're looking at this is completely wrong and you need to completely reassess uh, how, you, how you look at the situation. Yeah, I think when people buy into a really exaggerated, kind of shocking and huge and ultimately preposterous story, and then it gets suddenly debunked and the scales fall away from their eyes, it can actually change them. That happened to me, actually, with 9-11. Well, actually, with the JFK assassination, when I first learned the problems with that story when I was in high school, and that messed up my relationship with American culture for the rest of my life. But then the same thing happened again at the end of 2003 when I looked into 9-11 and to David Ray Griffin's work that was about to be published on it and uh, was so shocked. But, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me 
that they could lie that preposterously, right? You know, just blow up mm-hmm. the World Trade Center blatantly in front of all of our eyes and uh, and then, you know, lie about that in that particular way and not be questioned at all in the mainstream. It, it was so outrageous that it kind of knocked me off <laughs> the career track I was on. And I wonder if that could happen with this, this you know, this baby story. Uh, but in any case, the Gaza program, getting back to that notion of whether this could have been a lie hop, a let it happen on purpose situation where the Israeli state, the brain trust, could be using Netanyahu to try to get a big uh, ethnic cleansing of Gaza or Palestine going. It occurs to me that that's a pretty tough project because, you know, where are the Gazan people going to go? Egypt certainly won't let them in. Egypt can't handle two million starving refugees. And the Israel, I don't see how Israel can get away with killing more than you know, somewhat more than it has in the past. I suppose they can, but not that much. You know, they can't put a dent in the actual population of Gaza, which is still going to be there. And the more Gazans they kill, the more angry the survivors are going to be. And the resistance will continue. And, you know, a new Hamas or even you know, more uh, more intense will arise in its place. So I just don't see really what they could realistically expect to be gaining from this strategically, especially because they've been doing well in hiding their crimes as they do fake normalization with other countries in the region. So what if, if it were a, a LIHOP scenario, what would they be trying to gain? Um, I think that they want to crush Gaza and possibly ethnically cleanse it. I mean, th- there's a lot of pressure that they could potentially apply to Egypt to try to get them. I mean, the whole mantra of people saying that these people have nowhere to go, I, I think is highly problematic. Um, they shouldn't have anywhere to go. They're already refugees. You know, a lot of these people in Gaza are refugees from what is now called Israel. Uh, Zionist forces drove them out of their home once, put them in Gaza, um, and now they're threatening to move to ethnically cleanse them another time. Um, I, I don't know what you call it, a double rinse cycle or something. Um, so, yeah. um, so I really wouldn't put anything past uh, Netanyahu. I mean, he, he said back in 1989 when um, uh, during the uh, uh, Tiananmen Square massacre that he said, that Israel should have used that as an opportunity to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. So, you know, he's been itching at the bit. And lots of Israeli analysts, have, you know, Yuri Davis and others have warned that um, they, you know, that the, the Israelis want to do another ethnically ethnic cleansing. So um, you, you, you have that genuine possibility and even if they don't ethnically cleanse them, they are going, they are clearly planning to, you know, butcher and strike and crush them as much as possible. Now, it's possible that this could all backfire. And um, if Hamas can, you know, I, I mean, in 2006, when Israel uh, invaded uh, southern Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah was effectively able to fight them back, um, but it was, you know, took a huge, you know, a huge toll on on the people of southern Lebanon. Um, 
and so we, we you know, uh, I, I would imagine that Hamas is attempting to replicate that. I don't know if they're capable of doing that. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't, you know, I'm sure that they have all kinds of booby traps and fighters and plays and uh, the Israelis who they've taken prisoners will certainly play a role in this potentially. But Israel has their Hannibal doctrine where they're, you know, basically their MO, it seems, is to just kill Israelis um, who could be in that kind of situation. Um, and they'll just bomb the crap out of various areas and there will be a humongous human toll to pay um, that, that the Israelis will extract um, and Netanyahu will hope to you know, be standing tall at the, at the end of it, but even if he isn't, it's still you know, a, a pulverization of a large chunk of Palestinian society uh, which is, you know, totally in line with the Zionist designs. Um, so, you know, I mean, from, from, from Hamas's point of view, um, you know, I mean, the, the context for this was that Israel was on a path of normalization, right? Uh, it was normalizing with all of these Arab dictatorships. Um, uh, Netanyahu just met with the president of Turkey for the first time ever a couple of weeks ago at the UN. Um, so I, I think that the, you know, I mean, I, I was coming to the conclusion that there was a huge Israeli attack coming um, because, you know, they had built these normalization procedures and that further isolates the Palestinians and then the, the, the Israelis can go after them. I, 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 I sense, but I don't know that Hamas saw that coming, you know, that they came to the conc same conclusion that they were becoming increasingly isolated and that they had to take the initiative and strike that, that, that could be what happened here. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and, um, but, uh -huh, uh -huh. so how, and, and how, how about the, um, escalation that's been going on, uh, at the Lebanon border, is it likely right. that we're going to see a two-front war? I don't know. Uh, we could see a two-front war. It could even go beyond that. Uh, you have um, in the past when um, Israel has pummeled Gaza at times, not always, Hezbollah has jumped in and started shelling northern Israel. Um, and I assume that they're well prepared to do that. Uh, you have the U.S. bringing in their uh, largest aircraft carriers into the region. So that seems to be an attempt to intimidate um, Hezbollah into not going in. That, that is that the U.S. could be sending a signal that if Hezbollah attacks Israel, that the U.S. will attack Hezbollah. Um, and there is precedent for this. The U.S., uh, the United States under Reagan bombed Lebanon um, and effectively took part in the Lebanese Civil War. Um, so, um, you know, that that's a possibility. And then, of course, you know, 
Hezbollah is tied to Syria and is tied to Iran. Um, uh, they will also attempt to, um, you know, they, they could also be attempting to intimidate uh, Iran uh, so that its support is, you know, less than it otherwise would be and is largely rhetorical and that it, for example, doesn't attempt legal processes like I mentioned before in terms of the trying to invoke the genocide convention. So I think that the U.S. strategy, uh, which is, you know, obviously, you know, 1000 percent behind um, Israel with um, Lincoln and Sullivan and uh, Biden and company, um, uh, you know, it, it is to facilitate Israel and try to intimidate, blackmail, or bribe everybody else from, um, you know, intervening in a way that attempts to, um, you know, get to a ceasefire uh, or to in some way alleviate the suffering of the, of the Palestinian people or to uh, seriously object to um, the carnage that Israel is already wreaking onto the region. So, do you suspect, like I do, that sending the aircraft carrier off the coast of Gaza is a kind of a, a dubious move in that, well, number one, a, a $10 billion aircraft carrier is a really juicy target in a time in which <laughs> you know, a, a half a million dollar missile can dispose of it. Uh, and then there's always the, you know, so, so the actual, the people who don't like the U.S. and Israel would be really tempted uh, to to go after it. And then there maybe, you know, the false flaggers who would like to sink a U.S. aircraft carrier as an excuse for an all-in kind of situation. Uh, and that maybe Netanyahu, for example, has been trying to get the U.S. into a big war on Iran for his entire career, pretty much. In fact, yeah. my intelligence sources, uh, as well as my own independent analysis, seem to say that 9-11 was indeed about taking out those seven countries in five years with Iran being the most important and that the plan all along was to have that big war with Iran. Netanyahu was involved with 9-11 perps and he's been dedicated to having this big war with Iran and then to go try to finish off the Palestinians under the cover of that war ever since. And it was only pushed back from the realist faction in the policymaking apparatus that prevented that. And so given that, and then given the history of you know, Gwyneth Todd having stopped a uh, sinking of a U.S. ship uh, off of Bahrain in 2007, which would have brought the U.S. into a war with Iran, they would have blamed it on pro-Iranian Bahrain forces. Uh, you know, given all of that and you know, the history of attacks on ships starting wars, you know, whether it's a fake attack at the Gulf of Tonkin or the Remember the Maine incident, uh, or, of course, Pearl Harbor, there were quite a few ships there, uh, putting this $10 billion aircraft carrier right off the coast of Gaza at a time when if Bibi wants to try to get his big war going, all he has to do is do a little false flag and take that thing out. And it would be really easy to blame it on Iran and its friends because all those people would just love to take out a U.S. aircraft carrier and they have the means to do it if they want to. So, I mean, it just seems to me to be an act of supreme recklessness to put that aircraft carrier there. What am I missing? You know, um, you know, I, I can't say that, that that kind of scenario is not plausible. Um, I mean, you do have also the precedent of um, Israel having attacked the USS Liberty. Um, yeah, yeah, right. 
and they completely got away with it. The Israelis, um, you know, attacked a, 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 a U.S. military vessel and killed a lot of U.S. soldiers and completely got away with it. Well, they got caught and they got away with it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> How does that right. work? Right, right. Um, so, um, so that, that's, you know, um, you know, I mean, th- th- this would be at a, at a massive scale. We're talking about an aircraft carrier. I, I, and I'm not a military expert. I have no idea if, you know, a missile can take out an aircraft carrier. Um, um, but it would. It might take more provoke. than one, depending on the missile. Right. I mean, the whole tenor of what we're seeing is the, 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 the U.S. sort of tying itself to Israel at, a, at, a, at, a, at an almost at a greater level um, than it has before. And I think we've seen a really crazy rollout over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Biden said a couple of weeks ago, you know, without Israel, no Jew in the world is safe. Uh, which was on its face a bizarre thing to say. What's he saying? That Jews in New York aren't safe? That their safety depends on Israel? That, you know, the Bill of Rights, you know, (laughs) doesn't, you know, ensure uh, religious freedom in the United States? Israel does. Um, And now we're seeing this mantra of the possibility of, uh, alleged possibility of attacks on Jewish um, folks in the United States. And it, it sort of highlights that the opposite is true, that, that, that Israel actually endangers uh, Jews around the world. Um, and so we, 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 part of what we could be seeing here is like an attempt to draw, um, to draw Israel to draw the U.S. into, as you say, I mean, you, you said it with respect to Iran, but even sort of beyond Iran, it, to 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 just completely draw the U.S. into um, this state where where it, it you know it so identifies with Israel that that everything um, is completely intermeshed. Um, you know, I, I think that that that's what could be unfolding here. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's what 9/11 was designed to do. After all, the dancing Israelis who set up to film the destruction of the towers before the first plane hit, and then were right. arrested, uh, wildly celebrating. Uh, thousands of dollars in cash was stuffed in their socks. They're working for a known Mossad front, the uh, Urban Moving Systems. They were held for two months. And failed lie detector tests were then sent back to Israel, where they went on television and bragged that they had only been sent there to document the event. So how did they know there was an event to document? Well, those guys, when they were arrested, they said they they told the police, we're not your problem. Israelis aren't your problem. The Palestinians are your problem. And I think 9-11 was there. That was the script. I mean, they you know, they knew the script. It was all designed to mesh U.S. and Israeli interests. And that didn't work out so well strategically for the U.S., which squandered seven trillion dollars and its moral authority on strategically, utterly counterproductive wars in in the West Asia region. 
and then woke up from this, you know, horrible bloodletting, sleepwalking trance it had been in just a few years ago and said, wait a minute, uh, China just caught up with us economically and Russia just caught up with us militarily. Maybe we'd better pivot here away from the region and get out of Israel's clutches. And of course, Brzezinski had been saying that all along. So I guess we, you know, U.S. pivoted away from, from the region, got out of Israel's clutches to a slight extent for a couple of years looking over at China and Russia. And now it looks like they've lost to Russia and Ukraine. And now they're going back into Israel's clutches, which, as far as I can tell, would be a good place to die. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I do differ somewhat in terms of I think that, you know, that, that they're it's not so much stupid as insidious. I mean, the $7 trillion didn't disappear, you know, some, you know, insidious Machiavellian uh, people got it. Um, You know, it was, you know, a a lot of, you know, money grubbing people went at it. And uh, again, the result of the U S actions after nine 11 was the pulverization of Iraq. So that, you know, uh, this independent, you know, obviously highly flawed, whatever, but independent functioning Arab society, even with the U.S. sanctions and everything, uh, was was basically, you know, made a quasi-protectorate of the United States. Um, And then you had the, um, you, you know, create, you know, creating havoc in Syria and Libya these were all strategic goals. I mean, they were sort of laid out and, you know, um, what was that document by Pearl and company that they made for Netanyahu actually uh, securing the realm. Yeah. The clean break document. Exactly. Um, Where they basically Richard Pearl for to Netanyahu and company to, to go after these independent Arab actors. Um, And you basically have Egypt, enslaved as a, you know, sort of a client of the United States um, so that there's fundamentally no Arab state that can push back in any meaningful way. Um, So at at a geopolitical level, I mean, if you want to say it, it was all a failure, I would say compared to what? Right. I mean, if the United States just let the region go on peacefully, it would integrate and there would be a rise in Arab nationalism in all likelihood. Right. I mean, you know, you know, Israel, you know, helped defeat Nasser effectively, which would have been, you know, an Arab nationalist. Or you could have the rise of some kind of, you know, Islamic uh, independent uh, movements that could be you know populist perhaps and have you know used the resources of the region for the benefit of the people of the region um you know the, the u.s has succeeded in preventing all of that from happening right you you, you got you know the gulf shakedoms you know pour their money into wall street and whatnot um so uh, you know in broad terms I, I think that the US establishment has done rather rather well for itself. Um you know yeah, it, it's I, not 
Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I can see that to a point, although it seems to me that the that Israel is a much bigger beneficiary of this continued destruction of West Asia and that it seems to me the U.S. theoretically should be able to live with a gradually unifying and strengthening West Asia. I don't think that would be as much of a threat to sort of the U.S. pretension to be at the very least the first among equals, but of course they don't want that. They want to, you know, they want to be the hegemon. But however you want to define U.S. imperial power, uh, U.S. could do pretty well for itself in a world with the uh, Islamic and, and Arab worlds becoming stronger and actually becoming a bit of a counterweight to China and Russia. So. Geopolitically, as Brzezinski said, and of course, he was a notorious Russophobe, so maybe he exaggerated that. But right. there's no question that the only peer competitor right now is China, and that Russia is the only military peer competitor. And the combination of the two is quite dangerous to you know the U.S. pretensions to hegemony, and that the rise of these competitors has been facilitated by the U.S. pulverizing West Asia. Uh, obviously for the benefit of Israel, but I, I'd say not so obviously for the benefit of the U.S. Like I said, I don't really see how the U.S. gains all that much from having a pulverized West Asia as opposed to having a slightly strengthening and unifying one. Yeah, I can I can sort of see that. The, I mean, I, I view the U.S. establishment, you know, sort of, you know, Huntington, you know, with his clash of civilizations, they, they sort of shuffle back and forth from different, you know, targets. So obviously for the last several years, Russia slash orthodoxy has been a leading target. Clearly they're, um, you know, uh, at odds in at least some respects with China. So they, they don't mind Ukrainian orthodoxy as long as they have American tranny right. spokespeople. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and, and anyway, Zelensky is Jewish, so it all works out. Um, so, <laughs> right. um, uh, so, so they'll go back and forth between these various things. And I think one net effect from it is to prevent, to attempt to prevent the cohesion of a critique and the movement in the United States, but by going from enemy to enemy, you're, you're sort of discombobulating things. Um, and then, of course, you have the whole COVID, you know, pandemic thing. Um, uh, with, yeah, we have always been at war with West Asia. We have like always Orwell. been at war yeah. <laughs> with, with West Asia, although, you know, at times I think that the U.S. colludes with various powers, you know, in, in some ways it colludes with China and Russia at times. The, the U.S. establishment does. Um, and and there's this tension and they, you know, they effectively threaten each other, um, uh, especially the United States, threatening others um, to play ball in certain ways. I mean, R Russia has not been that good on Palestine. For example, um, you think they're getting uh, any better now? Maybe. I mean, you know, they, they've been fairly strong against U.S. actions in Syria, um, so that might translate. But I, I think Russia has always, under Putin, attempted to have very good 
relations with Israel, particularly Netanyahu. Um, so, you know, that, 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 that's sort of a questionable dynamic to me. Um, and, you know, I mean, all of these powers colluded with respect to the pandemic. Um, so, you know, the, 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 there's, you know, I, I, I view it as a combination of clashing and colluding um, uh, for the benefit of the elites in each state. Um, um, but th- they'll, they'll sometimes, you know, just totally, you know, they will totally clash. I mean, obviously, the United States completely clashed with Saddam Hussein and took him out. Um, and he didn't even do anything, really. <laughs> no, he, he actually wanted to surrender. They, they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't yeah. take yes for yeah. an answer. Right, right, exactly. And Gaddafi, um, too, actually. Gaddafi, you know, if he hadn't given away his fake nuclear weapons program and stuff, maybe he'd still be around. Right, right. So, um, you know, so that, that's why, I mean, I look skeptically at everybody, including the Iranians here, um, you know, um, and, you know, and ultimately you, you, you could be seeing the, you know, sort of the, the, the Palestinians, you know, sort of, yeah, I mean, China and Russia, I mean, are they really going to put their back into preventing a complete slaughter of the Palestinians? I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt nice, it. It'd be nice if they would, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm trying to be a, a real realist here. Um and even Iran, I'm not sure what they're going to do. I think that the, the 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 basis of this is, you know, and and will be around what the Palestinians do. If some portion of the Israeli public can wake up and say, "No, we're we don't want this," um, and some portion of the U.S. public to Say no, we're not going to go down this road. Enough is enough. We've, we're sick of your lies. Uh, I mean, I mean, we have Netanyahu and Biden at the helm. You know, Netanyahu was probably the biggest propagandist for the Iraq War outside of the United States, and Biden was probably the biggest propagandist for the Iraq War in the Democratic Party. And they're they're the guys who are in charge here. It's yeah, yeah, they're both gangsters. Totally, it's, they, they they are the two leading. You know, propagandists, documented, you know, Iraq war, WMDs, they they were in the lead spouting all of this. The fact that they could get to positions of power again is completely insane. Um, So the way that this is unraveling with this massive propaganda is kind of to be expected. So it's a matter of people having the gumption to stand up and call it out at every opportunity. I, I think that that's largely the way out of this, although as, as you know, as you pointed out, you, you could well see, you know, Hezbollah, um, you know, jumping into the fray, but it, it is unpredictable. I have to say, I mean, I'm not claiming to be omniscient here. I mean, if Hezbollah jumps into it and you're right with those U S ships there, I mean, Hezbollah, you know, can, you know, that they're, they're not going to, there's a very good chance that they're not going to lie down. Um, and uh, and then how are Syria and Iran and then Russia going to react? 
um, how are the Arab capitals going to react when they have, you know, a million people um, in, you know, Amman and Cairo and so on. Um, you know, um, that, 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 that could be what we're looking at here. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, one more element of the crazy times we're in is this is all happening kind of as, as we come out of this COVID episode of mass hysteria or mass psychosis or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this uh, hypothesis, which I tend to agree with, uh, that Ron Unz has written a book about, that it, it sure looks like COVID emerged from a U.S. bio attack on Wuhan and that the obvious objective would have been to try to narrow the gap in economic growth between the U.S. and China, which had been pretty large before COVID, and now it's shrunk considerably, so maybe the attack was a success, even though it blew back and hurt the U.S. and the West, uh, at least as much as China. It shut down China's economy and allowed for the beginnings of decoupling. So the U.S. and its allies, quote-unquote, are now looking for alternative places to, to make things other than China and China's economy has slowed way down and so on and so forth. It seems to me there's a, quite a lot of evidence that that's what happened, including that uh, revelation from the inside the intelligence community that the DIA knew in November of 2019 that a terrible pandemic was brewing in Wuhan, China, and it issued a warning uh, to that effect. So, you know, given all of that and given your investigation of the COVID origins cover up, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how you see that. And would you agree that that was very likely uh, an attack from within the U.S. Uh, so-called biodefense community? Um, I mean, I've looked at Ron's stuff. Um, I haven't read the book. Um, he makes some interesting points. For example, when COVID broke out, it wasn't just in China. One of the first major outbreaks was in Iran, interestingly enough. So two big U.S. rivals uh, were the first ones to get large outbreaks. And not anywhere in Iran, uh, in, in Qom, and it seemed to go straight right. to the mullahs. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was obviously difficult to contain. And so, I, I mean... I mean, one upshot of COVID, I mean, when you say it hurt the United States, I don't, again, I don't know that it really hurt the United, it depends what you mean by the United States, right? It, it's it's like the perpetual wars. Uh, you know, a lot of regular Americans end up getting hurt and literally killed, um, but a lot of people become enriched. So I, I think that the main upshot of COVID in many respects was to get to alter you know, modern life um, and to get people in front of computer screens and to further decimate Main Street. Um, you know, a ton of mom and pop shops ended up going under um, and to uh, usher in, an, you know, another level of, a, you know, a surveillance state. So and, and in that respect, you could have collusion. Uh, between the U.S. establishment and the Chinese establishment, they they both want to surveil their own publics. So again, well, I, well, I which but China was able to do that without COVID. Yes, but you know, you you know, I'm sure that they have concerns about people in China wanting to not, you know, to not accept an authoritarian model. Um, 
and you know and, and so COVID helped you know prevent any you know possibilities of you know uh, you know uh, of an erosion of that. I mean, you're right, China can do that, but you know, I, I would imagine that. But wait, 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 Sam. I, I, I don't agree with that because it looks to me like COVID actually created more problems for China in that respect because China knew it was under bioattack, so it grossly overreacted as the attackers knew it would. They gamed it out, I'm sure. And so China mm-hmm. overreacted with its its huge lockdowns and its people really chafed under those uh, draconian lockdowns. And now there's more pressure against the Chinese system in China because of COVID. China is less stable. Its economy has, has been badly hurt by COVID. It came out of COVID with a much lower economic growth rate. And uh, a lot of indicators are not as good as they were pre-COVID. That would have all been gamed out by the perpetrators of the bioattack. I mean, that's plausible. Um, uh, I, I do think that now what we're seeing is you know, there, there's a mantra of China being the model, um, you know, in, in some circles that that, that 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 the U.S. and other countries should look to China as being this efficient model because they want to adopt the authoritarianism um, uh, that, that's closely associated with it. Um, so you might well be right that. Uh, this was in some respects a setback if China, you know, quote unquote, overreacted. Um, although, you know, you'd think that they would be more blunt about talking about if they think that the U.S. set loose um, a bioweapon against them. Um, yeah, they, they, did, they made a couple of broad hints and the Iranians they did, did make direct accusations. They, they did. There were individual people, I think, in the in, in the Chinese hierarchy that, that, that said things, but it's not, I mean, they're not, you know, when they, when they speak at the UN, they don't say <laughs> the U S um, you know, uh, you know, set loose a bioweapon on us. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, the way that things have panned out since, I mean, it's been remarkable how the pandemic has been completely memory hold at this point. I mean, I've been very critical of Robert Kennedy's actions, not just simply his stance on Israel, which is completely insane. Yeah, we should do another show on that. Yeah, Uh, but but he he also hasn't been really articulating a critique of the pandemic, which you would have expected that he would have. So I think that the Ukraine war helped memory hold the pandemic and now – what Israel's doing is going to memory hold the pandemic. And there, there's a certain utility in that to the system, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, that, that there, it, it wants to go from subject to subject and disaster to disaster. And there's never a moment of reckoning and accountability for the last disaster. Um, that, that, couple, it's like fleeing forward, right? Uh, fleeing? Fleeing forward. In other words, you, yeah. you know, you have a disaster and uh, rather than, you know, fleeing backward and reckoning with what you did to bring on the disaster, you flee forward into an even bigger disaster and all the people forget about the first one. Exactly. And that's why I'm very skeptical of people saying, oh, Netanyahu's going to have to pay for this. Um, but they're going along tacitly with the attack um, that Israel um, is beginning to and it will likely massively escalate against Gaza. And I'm saying, no, you need a moment of reckoning right now. Um, 
Netanyahu, you know, it was either a, you know, let it happen thing or incredible dereliction of minimal duty. And you don't have to be a left winger or whatever. I mean, every normal Israeli now should be like, how the hell did you, Mr. Security, you know, uh, allow this to happen? And, you know. Well, let's hope it turns in that direction, and maybe the uh, American Jewish community will follow the lead of the brave people like Max Blumenthal, who are dealing with this issue sensibly. Well, thank you, Sam Husseini. It's great to finally get you on the show. I appreciate your brilliant work. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Kevin. Very good to talk with you. Likewise. Take care. It's uh, Sam Husseini, Kevin Barrett here on Proofsheet Radio, Proofsheet.com, and Kevin Barrett, Central.is on the website, as well as Kevin Barrett.substack.com. But yes, Proofsheet.radio, live every Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. See you next week.